Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, two things before we get started. One, uh, we're going to have communion at the end of the service. You probably noticed that when you came in, but if you didn't, it's a good time to just begin getting your heart ready. We're going to do it a little different today, but I'll explain that at the end, okay, when we get to it. But just get your minds and hearts ready for it. Uh, and I have been a guest at churches when they're going to do communion, and I'm not familiar with how they do it. And if you're a guest, uh, don't panic. It's going to be easy and clear, and if you don't want to, you don't have to. All right? I'll explain that when we get to it. Second thing I want to tell you is I'm going to throw a lot at you today. Uh, not in terms of amount, so don't worry. You're going to miss lunch or something. It's not going to happen. Um, so I just want all of us to just sort of be ready for that. All right? Uh, We said last week, as we got to this particular text in Mark 12, 13 to 17, which were sort of part two of the same passage, that Jesus from the very beginning had announced his kingdom and that that had aroused the political senses and the political groups of the day. Because the role of the Messiah had, by its very nature, political overtones. Issues like justice, military might, compassion, care for the poor. All those were tied up in Jesus' ministry and very clear. And some assumed that Jesus would do that many times. I say many. There were at least a few times that are recorded for us where the people tried to put Jesus on a political platform and rally him right into a political position in society. And Jesus you know, of course, diffuse that. The religious leaders at this point here are sort of, I mean, they have reached their peak with Jesus. They're fed up with him. And they are trying to force out of his mouth, this is important, they're trying to force out of his mouth what they know must be true about him. He has to be a revolutionary. No one who's coming in as the Messiah, prophesied from the Old Testament, could not have some... uh, some commitment to see the governmental system that's presently in place through Rome ousted. So everyone knows. I mean, no one's just going to make any significant change. Let me put it that way. Whether you were in a religious group or a political group, no one thought you had any potential of changing anything unless you were elected. Unless you had a platform. Unless you were political. And in Jesus' day, specifically, a revolutionary. And so, everyone assumed he was one. That's important to remember. And of course, the key issue in, uh, at the time to sort of expose a revolutionary was the poll tax. It was the head tax. I mean, if we could get him to come clean on that issue, we'd know he was a revolutionary. All right? The poll tax, remember, they hated this tax, the Jews. It was a very minimal amount of money. You only paid it once, but everybody had to. And it was just a reminder of your submission to Rome, and the Jews hated it. 
You had to pay it with a denarius, a silver coin that had Tiberius's bust on it and his face and, and all of them here. And so and then it said in there that he was divine and that he was the son of God and that he was a high priest. But the Jews just despised it. And remember, when this was instituted, Judas the Galilean in A.D. 6, 25, 26, 27 years earlier, when they instituted that tax, revolted. So Judas the Galilean rallied the Jews, cleansed the temple, announced the kingdom of God. But of course, Rome squashed him quick and a number of Jews died. So the issue of the poll tax that Jesus is being asked about is a is a combustible issue. We're talking about very personal. So, if we can get him to say that he wouldn't pay the tax to Rome, then Rome would kill him and he would prove himself a revolutionary. On the other hand, if he says he will not pay it, get this, the people would then know he was not a revolutionary and they'd walk away from him. So Jesus is sort of in a, you know, heads I win, tails you lose kind of situation. He can't win. But either way, I mean, if he's not a revolutionary, then what's he going to do for us? So both parties wanted him in. So they're boxing him in with a yes or no question. There's a lot of details on all of that. You'll have to listen to last week to get him because I have too much to say to go back. So the question is, should we give it? Yes or no? Don't mess around. Give us a straight answer. So Jesus asks for a coin. He says, let me see one. And of course, that's where we left off. Let me see one. So we see one, remember, and we see what's on both sides. There's an image and an inscription. The image is Tiberius himself, who's leading Rome. And then on the other side is, is some woman. And then the inscription. That he is the son of God, that he is divine, that he's king. And that he's the high priest. So Jesus says, this is his answer. So they brought one and they said, whose image is on it? Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. So whatever this is, and I know when you're thinking about this question, we have such a different perspective of the answer to this question. Um... It's so hard to try for all of us to try to understand exactly what they would have been thinking. I mean, why are they so amazed by that? I mean, sitting where we sit today, uh, I mean, we'd all say it's a good answer. But I mean, are, are, are any of you like, <laughs> you're probably not. But you've got to understand their situation in order for it to be applicable to you today. They're amazed because Jesus, is, you say, well, you're going to see it's far more amazing than even you imagine. Because Jesus takes this either or, yes or no situation, and he turns it into a both and. And you're not, he frustrated them. Because Jesus both accepts and rejects what's on the coin by this statement. 
The coin is Caesar's, but Caesar's not God. That's essentially what Jesus' answer is. That's why you see the contrast between these two. This contrast didn't exist in Rome. If his face was on the coin, he was God too. So Jesus is drawing a fine line with that coin. And I love what Tim Keller says about this because he says this is the first theory of limited government in the history of the world. See, because up to this point, and for many years after, if you ruled the world, you were considered God. No one could question your authority at any level because you were backed by the gods. You had divine authority. So Jesus is coming in and dividing that right here. So he says, give him the money, but don't give him everything he wants. Of course, the pretensions of every Roman ruler, of every ruler of the day, was that they would get full and ultimate allegiance from everyone. Jesus says, give him his money, but don't give him ultimate allegiance. That is an incredible statement here. He owns the coin. Give it to him. I mean, he literally, just by the way, for your own personal knowledge, the coins were minted out of his personal wealth. It was literally his money. So Jesus is essentially saying, he owns the coin, give that back to him. But I own stuff too. I'm an owner too. And of course, a far superior one. Because if Caesar isn't God, that means there's someone above him. That means, hey, it has authority. The the Roman government has authority. But there's a greater authority. And I want you to notice, because Jesus does something else in this text that's important. They ask, should we give Caesar the taxes? Jesus, now, of course, the net here doesn't change that. I think the NIV puts render. Um, But Jesus doesn't use the same word that they use. Should we give Caesar our taxes? Jesus uses a word that means to pay back. It's a use that pay back what he deserves. Now, this makes it a little more ambiguous, this very thought right here. In other words, don't be thinking of giving him stuff. You return for what you've been benefited. And as a Roman government, there was lots of things that the Jews benefited from. They took advantage of the roads, the, you know, the water system, uh, protection. They got a lot from their government. Give it back. Return. Pay it back. But you're not buying into anything. You're just paying that back. But you're not buying into everything. You see the difference? That's what Jesus is saying. On the other hand, what you owe me, if he only gets this little piece, and there's only one other person to serve, guess where everything else goes? Who you owe everything to is God. Now, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, uh, I think explains this perfectly. See if you can grasp essentially why the crowd is amazed. He says it perfectly. Nobody could say that Jesus was a revolutionary 
because he didn't forbid the paying of taxes like Judas the Galilean did. He said pay the taxes, so Rome's not going to come get him now. On the other hand, no one could deny that Jesus was a what, that what Jesus said wasn't revolutionary because it was revolutionary. Don't look at Caesar as God. That was revolutionary. It's it's incredible, and the crowd feels it and makes the distinction. In other words. Jesus, the Galilean, is envisioning a whole different kind of revolution, but far different from Judas, the Galilean. Which speaks volumes to us as believers. Because Jesus advocated neither political revolt nor total acceptance of the government. Now, there were two groups of people who didn't pay taxes in Jesus' day. The Essenes... Okay, which are commonly associated with Qumran and, and hanging out over there on, you know, to the, uh, around the Dead Sea. We got to see it when we went to Israel. They checked out of society. So you got two groups. They protested. They hated Herod and what he was doing and how it affected temple life. And, and they hated Rome. And so they sort of moved out to a cave. They lived in caves. So, you know, we got the Dead Sea Scrolls from them, so we're glad about that. But we... But they checked out and they stood around, you know, in a desert waiting for God to come back. They just said, we're done with reality. We're done with society. We're checking out. They didn't pay taxes because they protested. That was their protest. The other group was the zealots, like Judas the Galilean. They didn't check out. They wanted to wipe out the government. So you only had two options. You either check out or you wipe out. And Jesus is advocating neither of those. Neither of those work. And I'll bet there's a part of you in this room, you probably lean to one side or the other on that. Politically. So Christ has given us some solid direction here, although it's not as comprehensive as we'd like to have, especially as as Americans, where there's a whole lot more political room than most people in the world get to experience. So we tend to be, it tends to be a little more complicated. So don't check out. Jesus would simply say, and by, and by, you say, what do you mean by that doesn't check out? Well, you still got to, you, you still got to give to Caesar what Caesar's. You live here, live like a citizen. Don't bury your head in the sand. That's what he's saying. Don't check out. Listen, in other words, you supporting the government You're not violating your loyalty to God. See, the Jews didn't feel that way. See, the Jews had, like, unlike us right here, right now, they didn't have theological rationale for why they ought to do anything for their government. We do, because he tells us to. Read Romans 13, read 1 Peter, and read 1 Timothy. He tells us to. That's why we do it. They didn't understand that you could support your government, even though they don't do it near the things you want them to do and still be loyalty to God. Still be loyal to God. They had no rationale for that, but Jesus is giving it to us here. And then, of course, the rest of the New Testament expands on that. So we can operate. We can, in our country, we can contend for moral values. But as a Christian, I don't get to escape 
the obligations that come to me as being a citizen because I'm a Christian. I don't get to do that. And in all honesty, I have always leaned for most of my life toward the checkout side rather than the wipeout side. How many of you tend to be on the checkout side? Nobody likes to admit anything politically. I don't want to put anybody anywhere. Okay? And so Jesus is saying to me, I don't want you to do that, Pete. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, you're not here to figure out what I'm telling you to do. You're here to figure out what Jesus wants you to do. Isn't that right? So if you hear him telling you to do something, you go, I haven't done that all my life. Well, stop. (laughs) I said, okay. You don't want me to check out? What does that mean? That's what we're here for. Just a reminder. On the other hand, you can't revolt either. Violence is out of the question for you. And the reason is, is because it matters. But here's what God is saying in this text. Here's what Jesus is saying. But government isn't everything. So for those of you who tend to go to the other side politically, be very careful. Because Jesus is saying, government's not the primary way you're going to change the world. Not even close. The structures of government and policy could never transform the world. It never has, it never will. So Jesus is saying, don't completely act like it's nothing and check out. And don't act like it's everything and put all your eggs in that basket. There's no need to do that. That has profound implications for us, and I'm going to take what at least feels to me at some degree is a risk to try to apply it to us. And I'm going to say some things that are going to be I don't know how they're going to be taken. I don't want to assume anything. But let's just talk for a few minutes. It's not the goal of God to turn any nation into a Christian nation. And that includes America. And I'm already getting the looks. Not even close. We tried making government Christian a few times in this one. Medieval period, Constantine. And some could argue that even the Reformation had political implications that were not really good for Christianity, even though some of them were. But there are all kinds of problems when you try to make a government be what the church is called to be. You run into all kinds of problems taking Christian ideology and jamming it down the throats of people who are not, who do not know Jesus Christ. That includes your neighbor as much as it does your government. And so I jotted down in my application and understanding of this five things that I think Christians make a mistake doing. As Americans, and I'm trying to apply it to us. The first thing that happens is we come off as elitists. And I'm talking to Christian Americans, not all Americans. Okay, I have no authority over anybody who's not a believer. The only authority I have is God's word. 
And if God's Word tells us and applies it, and I just want to apply it to Christians who I'm hoping more than anything else become what God wants them to be more than anything else. We come off as elitists. And Jesus was anything but an elitist. We've been in Mark for what? 10, 12 years? Did Jesus ever come off as an elitist to you? In anything? Exclusive, arrogant, and better than. Most of the world sees us that way. We have to be careful as Christians that our language does not communicate that. And you're going to see why in a minute. The second thing I think that happens to uh, Christians in their political uh, hopes is when they lose an issue politically, they feel like victims. And I will tell you right now that a lot of Christianity right now feels like a victim because of what the Supreme Court said. You need to be reading your New Testament. You're never a victim. And see, when you take the posture of a victim in any area of your life, you're going to screw your life up. In your marriage, if you're the victim, you're going to be vindictive. And see, when you're a victim, you become vindictive. And so what happens is we get madder, more bitter, louder, and we try more desperately to moralize the country instead of evangelize it. There are two different things. And I'm just talking about Christians who fall into the pit. I'm not saying there are not moral issues we disagree with our country on. Of course there is. How we do that, though, in the idea that if we just could get them to see what we see, then the world would be different, is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel and your relationship with Jesus Christ from the get-go. Look what Peter says. First Peter, by the way, will take any single person in here in just about every situation you can be in where you feel threatened, dominated by any authority in your life. And that means personally in marriage, in any area, especially civil government. And that's what his concept is here in First Peter 3. Who is there to harm you? And he's speaking of the civil authority, speaking of the government. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? You're not a victim. We're never considered a victim. Not by anything that anybody does. If you see yourself as one, then you get deflated and desperate. Here's what Peter says. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Look at that. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone. Hey, look, how many of us are shouting things we don't need to be shouting? Why don't you live in such a way, Peter says, somebody will ask you. Christians don't get asked enough. We're screaming and hollering for morality, but we don't live a life that requires or even interests anybody. That is painful right there. Because you're going to give an account. You can give an account of the hope that's in you. How? Look. With gentleness. 
That's how you deal with opposition. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In other words, close your big mouth if your life doesn't match it. Now, I'm being nice here because I want to let you know that I'm standing out here with you when I hear that. I'm not yelling at you. I'm every bit in there as anybody else. Hillside, at the end of the day, whatever this government does, Christians are not victims of any policy. The second, or the third thing, is just the opposite side of the coin. When we have political victories, we feel victorious. As if the government has finally figured out what God intends for the whole universe. And then we sort of check out of what Peter is saying here. And so we rely on the government to handle the policies. So we don't feel any real obligation to be what God has called us to be in the world. We sort of check out a little bit when we're victorious. If the Supreme Court would have said what, of course, we believe the Scriptures teach about marriage... If the Supreme Court would have opted out you know what would have happened? Christians would have just went, thank God. I'm glad I don't have to worry about that issue anymore. And we'd have went right on with our little lives. And that's horrific. That's one of the problems being in this country as a believer. It's a hard thing to be American and be a Christian. Or to be a Christian and be American. Because the American values start dictating how we are as Christians. We start hoping in the system. We hope in our system far more than anyone else does in the world. And slowly but surely, we back off of our responsibility to, who, to be who we are supposed to be in the world. So as long as our guy wins, and by the way, God has no guy. And just really radical for Texans, he's got no party either. As long as our guy wins and our policy passes and our issue advances, if we're winning elections, that's paramount to winning souls. And that is deadly. I'm reading, uh, or actually I've read, the story of a book that I'm going to be sharing with you here coming up in a series coming up, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. And here's what she says about Christians after she converted. Christians thought they could rest in Christian tradition, not Christian relevance. And when I read that, I took a step back. I said, okay, let's think about that. We're so desperate to try to get our country to be something more Christian like it seemed to be in the early history, in tradition. We're more excited about trying to get it to be what it was than being the Christians we ought to be in society today. And as a result, we're not relevant. Listen, Christians' voices are the le- is the least heard in our country. And most of that is because of us. We do not know how to dialogue. We hate anyone who doesn't think like us. 
that would have never flown in an early church, talk about victims, that were being killed for what they believed. But because we have a little more wiggle room of freedom, we have opted out of being real salt and light and decided to argue. That just doesn't cut it. It won't accomplish God's Don't equate political victories with spiritual victories. We do that. The fourth thing I think we do, and many of us have done this. I've done all of these, by the way, so I hope you don't feel like... uh, The only reason I know them is because I've done them. Or do them. Is we, we get crushed and we give up hope. I don't know how many Christians you talk to just have literally given up on our country and the world. We're no, in, we have no biblical mandate, no reason to give up on anything. We forget the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. There's no political agenda that can do that. No political agenda can do that. People who know, that's why people who know the gospel, ought, their whole political stance ought to be different the moment they come to Christ because the gospel says something different than the world has always said politically. Number one, politics won't solve the problem, ultimately. Every Christian ought to know that. Every Christian ought to be one of those people who are very humble when they interact with people who don't think like they think because they know what the gospel has taught them, that they are part of the problem. Not that the problem's out there. For every Christian, the gospel has taught you, you are part of the problem. That's humbling, isn't it? You can't just point fingers anymore, not as a believer, because the gospel has already shown you. Or you don't understand the gospel. That you're part of this big mess. Well, that changes the way. That humbles a person. And your interaction and dialogue is far different. It ought to be. And that's what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches we never lose hope. We're never decimated. We recognize it. And we're able to interact with the world in humility. I mean with people who have different morals and different values and different goals. Just because we know where we've been and what God has done for us. This last one. We prioritize sometimes. I don't know if we do this consciously or unconsciously. I think there's just, there hasn't just been enough explanation in the church about how Christians who are Americans ought to live. We prioritize, sometimes unwittingly, American freedom over Christian obligation. And the stakes are extremely high in this. 
I have certain rights and freedoms as an American, living in a democracy, that, by the way, are awesome. No one's denying that. But my ultimate allegiance is to God. And I will forego any political, national, or personal right that is mine that interferes with my responsibility to God. The government may say I'm free to do something, but God may not. And that American freedom does not trump God's obligation or my obligation to him. So, yes, America tells me I can speak up. But God may tell me to shut up. They tell me that I can rally and scream and hold up hateful signs. And Jesus tells me to be gentle and reverent. The government says I can express myself. Jesus says, don't you dare do it unloving. Don't you dare do it unlovingly. Look at 1 Peter 2. Same book, same issues. And I love this. You're going to love it. This verse right here is just live as free people, not using your freedom as a pretext for evil. But as God's what? See, this is what you are. I don't care. Listen, you're free in Christ, yes. And you're free in America. But you're a slave of God. Don't forget that. And this slavery trumps that freedom. You hear what he's saying? You're a slave of God. Honor all people. That's what a slave does. He loves the family of believers. He fears God and he honors the king. Every one of us have guilt here, don't we? I'm going to tell you something else, and this is just incredible. I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 because it's literally otherworldly. It's otherworldly in this regard. Listen to what he says under this same heading. Since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to anyone. This is profound, in order to gain more people. That's my goal, by the way. I can become a slave to anyone, even though I'm free. And what Paul is essentially saying here, and I don't have time to give you a lot of background. Here's what he's saying. I can forego personal, national, corporate, any kind of right I want to. I may have the right to do anything. How many times have you come out of your mouth? It's my right. You may have the right, but here's what Paul is saying. I can forego that right for the sake of what? People. To the Jew, now he's going to get national and racial on us. To the Jew, I become like a Jew. Well, Paul, aren't you a Jew? Yeah, you are. He still sees himself as becoming like one. To those under the law, become like those under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, I'm not under the law. I'm Jewish, but in Christ, I'm not under the law. But when I become like a Jew, I don't eat bacon when I'm with the Jews. And when I'm with the Jews, I do the things they do. 
Not the sinful things, but the things I know are okay. But I can be like a Jew. Look, to gain those who are under the law. To the free, to those free from the law, I become like one who's free from the law. Oh, now I'm going to change my whole, my whole approach. Though I'm not free from God's law, but under the law of Christ, to gain those free from the law. Those are Gentiles. And he's going to say that. To the weak, from around weak people, I become weak. You say, what do you mean by weak people? Well, he explains this in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's a little complicated. But let me just say this. The people whose conscience aren't as strong as yours. You might think it's fine to drink. It's your right to drink. You don't see any problem biblically with it. But if you're around people whose conscience can't hold up under that, you happily give up your strong position in order to be more in a position to win them. That's what he's saying. Oh, it's my right. Biblically, I'm allowed to. Paul just limited that freedom. And what he's essentially saying is love limits the freedom. I love you, so I won't do that if I'm with you. It's no big deal. Now watch this. This gets even more profound. I do all these things because of the what? The gospel. Because that's my priority, not my race. Not my nationality, not the country I live in. This is it. And then he makes this comment here, and I promise it could be your, this verse right here has haunted me all week. I've almost puked about three times reflecting on it. I hope you do too. Look at this. In other words, Paul's saying, I want to share the gospel with these people. So when I'm with them, I can interact with them. I don't let one part of me determine the rest of me, except for the fact that I'm a Christ follower. That's what dictates my world. Nothing else. So that, look, not so that I can just preach it, but I want to participate in the gospel. The gospel means I can't share the gospel, which is what Paul's saying, unless I'm willing to sacrifice something to do it. If I want to participate in it, you can't share the gospel and not live the gospel. If the gospel is Jesus dying on a cross and I've accepted that, that means I die to myself too. So I can easily become to whoever I need to become, sacrifice what's mine because that's what the gospel is. It's about sacrifice. And if I'm not sacrificing, how can I talk sacrifice with anyone? Oh, my Lord. That's devotion time for the next 12 months. I'll tell you. Here's Paul saying, I don't want to just preach gospel. I want to actually see my life sacrificed like Christ. How can you stand next to a cross and be elite? How can you not? How can you stand next to a cross and be anything but humble? Paul is saying, I'll be, we're world Christians, according to Paul. I can relate to anyone on the planet. And I'll do it gladly, even if I have to sacrifice to do it, because that's what the gospel is, and that's my message to you. I'm going to preach Jesus sacrificed his life for you, and I'm not willing to sacrifice anything. Paul says, I'll sacrifice any right I have. 
that's just overwhelming. Listen to this. I got to hurry. I'm never going to get done. But I got to tell you this story because I just think it's profound. Uh, here, I'm just going to read it to you so it'd be easier. Um, on June 16, 2012, Dan Cathy, CEO of Chick-fil-A, inadvertently prompted a nationwide controversy by stating that God is the one who defines marriage. I was going to save this for the series, but it fits too well here. Mayors in Chicago and Boston threatened to boycott Chick-fil-A. The firestorm died within a few weeks, but Dan Cathy did not withdraw in fear or counterattack in anger, although he was taking a lot of heat. He called, listen to what he did. He called Shane Windemeyer. Shane has been the leader of the LGBT movement for many years. He's founder for Camp of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgender college students. Shane had initiated a national campaign against Chick-fil-A, and yet Dan Cathy called him, and they spoke for over an hour. Dan never asked Shane to back off of his position of Chick-fil-A, but rather listened to him intently to hear his concerns. Dan and Shane became friends. Shane joined Dan as an honored guest at Chick-fil-A Bowl, and in his article, entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Caffey and Chick-fil-A, said, Shane described the friendship that he and Dan formed. Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know where I grew up, what my faith was, what my family, what my husband Tommy was like. In return, I wanted to learn about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. On Dan's page of the Kathy family website, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Now listen to what this writer says about what Dan did. If Dan Kathy were seeking his own kingdom, And looking at the moral controversy through the lens of either memory or marketing, he would have never befriended Shane. If all he cared about was business, and as a Christian, that's not what he's allowed to care about. And if he could sacrifice his right to good business in order to win a human being, then he's doing exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He would have fought fire with fire. He would have convinced the homosexual community that he is a hater. Or Dan might have modified his moral convictions to conform to our cultural standards. He did neither. Instead, Dan refused to allow a nationwide controversy, an issue, to blind his vision. He saw individuals, not a movement. And he responded with love, not antagonism. Hillside, that's how it's done. God has no special contract. And this is going to be another thing that's going to freak you out. Don't email me. Email Dave. (laughs) God has no special contract or blessing with any nation right now. I know you're panicking over that too. Used to be a sacred nation. That used to be Israel. It's not anymore. It will be Israel again. 
but it isn't now. God's blessing has all, read Romans 11. God's, all of God's blessing has been directed to the church where Jew and Gentile have come together to, to form one. I know you don't believe me. Here's what he says about the church. You are a chosen, look at this. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people of his own so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's talking about the church. We are his nation right now, and we are his race. And in there, there is no racism, and it can transcend any national line. The gospel can go anywhere. We can take it anywhere. We are one of those kind of freaky nations. We're a freaky nation. We're not limited by any nation. No nation can tell us what to do. We are a nation of people who are completely recultured in Christ. We're called to reach all nations. Think globally. So let's get back to our text for a second because this is really interesting. Jesus rejects the either-or and points to the kingdom agenda as the radical alternative. A far more radical revolution was Jesus advocating than what Judas the Galilean had done. I mean, Tiberius and Jesus are both claiming to be kings here. But Mark hints at this really important point. Uh... And he says this, because remember, because I want to take you back to one cool thing. Jesus asks for the coin. Do you know why he asked for the coin? Because he didn't have one. Not just because he wanted to see it and prove his point, but he also communicated that he was poor. I think D.A. Carson's right about that. A king with no coin. Hey, what kind of revolutionary are you? You got no money. One king has all the coin, and the other one has none. What kind of revolutionary could Jesus possibly be? And what Jesus is essentially saying in all of this is, I will change the world. I don't need any of the resources of the world to do it. They'd love to dominate, and they need power, and they need platforms, and they need money to have policies. And if they don't get elected, they can't do anything. Not me. Jesus is so revolutionary, he will change the world without those. Didn't Mark in the last section teach us that if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be what? A servant. See, a revolution in this world, all it does is take all the issues of power and put them in the hands of other greedy, power-hungry people. Jesus' revolution completely changes people to where they don't, they don't even think like that anymore. They don't aspire to that anymore. They think about others before themselves. That's Jesus' revolution. It's characterized by servanthood, not getting elected. Jesus is about to get rejected. His whole kingdom, his whole revolution is going to start by being rejected, not elected. It's going to happen on a cross. In my kingdom, you don't need that stuff. Didn't 2 Corinthians 8, 9 say Jesus became poor so that you might become rich? Jesus became coinless so that you could become rich. 
And if you come into his kingdom, you learn to live by his values. You care about other people more than you do anything else. and You give yourself to others. Jesus' revolution is not about getting. It's about giving. Now, no one understood this better. Well, actually, I don't know if I even have time for it now. doesn't look like I do. I'm going to bring the band out right now. They're going to come out. I wish I could tell you this, but we're going to take communion, and I, I really want to do that. I think I've said enough. One of these days, I'll let you hear this. Um, but maybe I'll just say it to you this way. Instead of taking five minutes while the band is coming out, you can take the screen away, you can take everything, except for this podium I need it right now. Just think about this for a second. Remember Jesus and Barabbas? You know, Barabbas was a revolutionary whose name in all likelihood was Jesus too. And how grotesque of an image to think that Israel was, think, was, was having to pick between two Jesuses at the end of his life. Jesus was an in, uh, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. You have two revolutionaries there. Two revolutionaries. Which one are you going to pick? Well, they picked Barabbas. And it is profound to consider that Barabbas' kind of revolution is easy to squash because all you have to do is kill him or imprison him. The problem with Jesus as a revolutionary is if you kill him, you launch his revolution. How many of you come to church today to worship Barabbas? Oh, yeah, you couldn't squash that revolution. Jesus changed everything because of it.